Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you. Hope y'all are doing well. Hope you have not been uh, plagued by, I guess, summertime allergies. That's a new thing for me, but we'll see how we do here today. Church family, here, here's the question that I, I inevitably, if, if you have, uh, unless you're just completely new and this is your first time ever walking into a church, in which case you get exempt this morning, but for the rest of us, I, I'm going to throw out a couple questions that I, I, I'm, I'm not questioning what I think your answer probably is going to be. What does it cost us? to know, love, and follow Jesus? What's it cost us? And then, and then subsequent from that, is He worthy? And when all is said and done, will it be worth it? Now, inevitably, I, I know all of us in the room, we're going to go, well, yes, amen, pastor, of course. That, and, that's, and that's great. But the danger for all of us is to give empty, correct-worded answers. So when I ask these questions this morning, what does it actually cost us to know, love, and follow Jesus Christ? And is He worthy? When we get to the end, having suffered whatever loss is necessary, will we find it's worth it? I lay these questions before us, the same as last week, to simply say, may we allow our hearts in humility to lay before the Lord and in His kindness and holiness to take His scalpel and pinpoint and correct Maybe where we're not quite sure what it costs, and maybe where in reality we question and wonder sometimes, is He really worthy? Is it really worth it? I invite you to take your Bibles with me back to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, last week we began the first of the, the letters to the seven churches, and this week we move to church number two, the church in Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 8. Here's what it says. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, or to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who was dead and who has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation, your affliction. I know your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy and slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's what the Lord, the Lord is, right, is, is speaking to the Apostle John, and, and He tells him, write to the messenger, most likely the pastor of the church of Smyrna. Now, here's what you need to know about Smyrna. Uh, today, you won't find much, uh, like if you were to go to Ephesus today, it's one of the most brilliant archaeological sites of, of the Roman world. If you were to go to Smyrna today, you wouldn't find very much because today the modern city of Izmir, Turkey sits on top of what was ancient Smyrna. Now ancient Smyrna had, had, a, had a reputation. They believed themselves to be the most beautiful city in all of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. 
They were adamant about it. And there was a lot to back up their claims to beauty, from, from stone-paved streets to stunning landscapes to a, a picturesque natural location for the city where, where the city of Smyrna set, set on a beautiful harbor. And then that harbor came up onto the land and, and went up Mount, Mount Pegasus. This beautiful, picturesque place, but, but that's not really what, what made it its claim to beauty. You see, Smyrna was one of the first ancient cities we know of that, that had city planners who laid out a design for the city so as the city grew and grew and expanded, it would look beautiful. And so as you came into that beautiful harbor and you looked out on the city crawling up the side of Mount Pegasus, you would see it adorned, adorned with temples to to deities, to Sybil and Apollo, to Aphrodite, up near the top, a temple to Zeus himself, like jewels adorning a crown, which is what they called that portion of the city that, that went up the side of Mount, Mount Pegasus. It was a city that was known for its intellectual history. This is the birthplace of Homer, writer of things like the Odyssey. It was a city with athletic, an athletic reputation. They regularly held athletic games, and the victors of those games would be seen by all the citizens as those victors were handed the victor's wreath, their version of what in our language would be the gold medal. Not only this, but it, the city of Smyrna was known for its deep and unyielding and staunch loyalty to Rome, and it was known to be an ally of Rome from a time before that was common in its area. In fact, it was Cicero who called Smyrna one of the most faithful and, and oldest allies. Evidence seems to point to the fact that Smyrna was one of the first, if not the first, hubs of emperor worship and one of the first cities to build a temple to the emperor. It was a city that had a, a loyalty and a patriotism and a, a, a love and a worship for its ruler and Rome and the ways of Rome that was in some ways unparalleled in the area around it. And in the midst of this city, known for its beauty, demonstrating a loyalty to the empire, the name Smyrna resembles the word for myrrh. Think gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the wise men's gifts to Jesus, myrrh, a, a thing used and known for the use of embalming bodies, a thing that was subsequent to suffering. So some have said Smyrna was known for Christians, by, not by Christians, for two things, beauty and suffering. And indeed, we find that in Smyrna here, there's a church. Now, we don't know who founded the church. We know the church in Ephesus came as a result of one of Paul's missionary journeys. It's probably no, not, not a wrong thought to think out of that. Smyrna would be the next city on up from Ephesus. Someone went up and shared the gospel. But the truth is, we don't know who the first believer was that walked into Smyrna and, and how the church got started. What we do know from Christ's words is there's a very real body of Christ there in Smyrna. 
And we know from when he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, we, we have to assume this is a church that has already demonstrated, has been, been demonstrating a lifestyle of faithfulness and loyalty, not to Rome, but to Jesus Christ, because they are suffering for his sake. And, and to the church, he writes, he writes and makes sure to this church in Smyrna, he writes and says, here's the one speaking to you, the first and the last, the sovereign Lord over all creation and history, the one who is the beginning and end, the alpha and the omega, the author and creator of life, the finisher and fulfiller of history, the eternal one who holds time in his hands, the first and the last. The one, and, and, and our Bibles will, will translate it because this is what makes sense in English, and it's correct, the one who was dead and came back to life, quite literally in the Greek, it's the one who himself became dead. Now, that reads weird in English, to the one he himself, the one himself became dead, but here's what it's alluding to. Jesus, the first and the last, the eternal one, the one who is sovereign and in charge, he really experienced a real death, a real physical death. Not only that, but he experienced a real physical resurrection that stands forevermore. He will never be touched by death. But what does it mean that he himself became dead? It's, it alludes to this. Jesus didn't die because his body just gave out. He, he didn't die as, as would be expected for you and I. He didn't die because other people took his life. Jesus was clear. He laid down his life. He allowed himself to die. No one took it from him. Because Jesus' death, we've already seen in Revelation, it's more than, than simply just he experienced a death, but, but in his death, out of which is the, the expression of his love for us. He died the death we deserve. He paid the penalty for sin that we have. He laid his life down. And that same power and authority, he took up his life again. This is the one who is Lord over all time, space, history, and life, the one who has faced death and, and has resurrected forevermore, the one who has paid the price for all those who have placed faith in him, the one who holds the keys of the kingdom of life and death. This is the one, church, who writes and speaks to you today. Amen. And this one says this. He says, I know. I know your tribulation, that is your affliction, serious troubles, pains, the hardships, the sufferings you are experiencing. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Now, this word poverty, it means absolute poverty, squalor, lacking the basic necessities of life. There's two uh, Greek words that could be used to describe uh, people who have, who have little means in life. Uh, one is used to describe those who have no nothing superfluous. That's not the word used here. The word used here is the word that means one possesses nothing at all. So, so now we're getting a picture for this church in Smyrna. They, they live in this city where they are surrounded externally by beauty, beauty that is crowned by the worship of pagan gods and loyalty to an emperor who says he is Lord. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this city of beauty, they, they face real suffering hardship, pain, loss. Not only that, but the word for poverty means that they don't have much. And it's interesting because likely what's going on here and, and what, seems to be, what seems to be the case from Jesus' words, they have poverty because of the suffering they've experienced for Christ. Because people have levied 
Economic repression and charges, boycotts against them. People have, have ripped businesses and livelihood away from them. They are in abject poverty because of their faithfulness. The world looks at them and says, you're nothing. But Jesus says, oh, I know. I see your tribulation and your poverty. I also see you are rich beyond compare. What a strange statement unless you take Jesus' word seriously when he said in Matthew 19, truly I say to you who followed me, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit, inherit eternal life. He says, he says to them, he says, church who's suffering, who's hurting, who has not, I see you. I don't just see you. I didn't just wake up today. Well, one, Jesus doesn't wake up. He's, he never slumbers. But at the beginning of your day, no angel came in and gave me a, a heavenly briefing of all the things that are going on in the world. And so I'm aware of the fact you're suffering. No, 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 that's not what he says. He says, I know. I know what you are experiencing because in my time on earth, I experienced every bit of it before you. I know from experience what you're dealing with. I don't just know from experience, but Scripture is clear that when we in Christ suffer for the sake of Christ, He suffers with us. He goes, I know. I'm not just aware of what you're facing. I know the hardship, the pain, the trials. I also see. I also see the treasure that you have laid up in heaven that is beyond what you have the ability to comprehend now. I see it. The world may persecute you. The world may say you have nothing. Oh, but I see your true state, church in Smyrna. You are rich beyond compare. He says, I know. He says, I don't just know what you're going through but I know what you're about to go through. It says, do not fear, literally stop being afraid. Stop being afraid of what you are about to suffer. And he says, here's, oh, I, I skipped a part, let me back up. He says, I don't just know your, your, the, the, your tribulation, your poverty. He said, I also know that daily you face blaspheme and slander by those who say they're Jews, those who say they're of God's people, but in fact are not. Instead, they represent a people, a synagogue of Satan. They represent a gathering of people whose, whose focus is to oppose and accuse and repress and oppress the people of God just like Satan. We say the, the blaspheme, slander, what do, what do we mean by that? Well, listen, first century Christians, church family, were accused of all sorts of wild things because nobody understood them. They were accused of cannibalism because they talked about eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. They were, they were ironically in a culture of immorality. They were accused of gross immorality because they talked about having love feasts. They were accused of incest because married couples were now brothers and sisters in Christ. They were accused of being arsonists because they talked about the fire of the Holy Spirit in one's life. They were accused of being atheists because they would not accept any God who had a physical depiction in an idol. They were accused of being homewreckers. For many of those early Christians, when they came to faith in Christ, their loyalty to Jesus and to one another in the church was so strong that they chose Jesus in the church over their own families who rejected them. And in the midst of all of this, 
Christians were labeled enemies of the state, traitors, guilty of treason because they refused to honor Caesar as Lord. And by the way, when you hear that they refused to honor Caesar as Lord, let me just remind all of us, that doesn't mean they literally believed Caesar was a deity. Most didn't believe Caesar was a deity. It just was a simple thing. They had to go in and pinch a little incense and put it before a picture of Caesar and say, Caesar, Lord. It was a political declaration of absolute loyalty to a human when absolute loyalty from a Christian can only be given to Jesus Christ. He says, I know the slander, the misrepresentation, and I realize and I know that, that, that all of the life, all of your economic life around you hin- hinges is built on your willingness to acknowledge the emperor. And so when you don't do that, I see the suffering that is taking place. I know what you're going through. I know what you're about to go through. You're about to suffer. The devil himself is gonna cast you in prison. And understand, in that day and age, when you were cast in prison, the idea of a life sentence for you to live out in a state-sponsored prison like you and I think of, that's not prison in the Roman world. Prison was a temporary holding cell until they decided if they were gonna send you out and fine you, exile you to middle of nowhere, or kill you. Most likely either exile or kill you. And kill you in this case, it could. It could at this point in time at the late first century be things like beheading or crucifixion or those things, but, but fully at this time were the gladiatorial games in local communities, tearing apart by wild beasts, burning. You say you wanna be filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit? Well, we'll light you up like a firecracker to light up the games for night. Prison is not just you're gonna go to a place you don't wanna be. Prison is representative of you are about to face suffering beyond what you think you're ready to handle. He said, I know what you're about to face and here's my word to you, stop being afraid. Don't you waste one more moment living in fear of what's about to come around the corner. Instead, be faithful. Be faithful unto death. Be marked evermore present, always continuously. Be marked by a steadfast loyalty to me. You're suffering, Satan's gonna throw you into prison, it's gonna last 10 days. The significance of 10 days there is primarily to tell them you are going to face suffering, but even your suffering at the hands of people more powerful than you has limits because I'm more powerful than them. You be faithful, even if it takes your life, and know If it takes your life in these 10 days or years from now, I wait with joy to give you the crown of life that as they take you out and march you through those streets and you look up at the crown of Smyrna adorned like with pagan temples like jewels where it seems as if all is hope, you make sure you know that when life's final breath comes, I will meet you there and I will hand you a crown of life, not a crown adorned with with temples to worldly things that are destined to crumble in a matter of centuries. I will hand you a crown of eternal life that'll never tarnish, that'll never fade, that'll never end, a crown of life. says, he who has an ear, let him hear 
Literally, there's a command there. He who, he who wants to know, he who really wants to know and follow Jesus, pay attention. And church family, that he who, he who wants to hear, let him hear. That command to hear, the statement that Jesus speaks, both are in present tenses, which means this is still what Jesus speaks to you and I today. It's not a history lesson about the church of Smyrna, but it is a, it, it is a call to you and I. A call to you and I to hear what the word of the Lord says, to hear what it says about who our Lord is. Who, who is Jesus here in this passage? Well, church family, he, he is the first and the last. You and I live in days where it seems like other people who don't have our best interest in mind seem to rule and run the world. Our jobs, our schools, our social, you can go on down the line and, and, and fit whatever social circle you want to. Here is the reality. The Jesus who knows us, whom we know in salvation, He is the first and the last. He is the one on the throne. He holds time in His hand. Not only that, but He is the one who became dead and resurrected. He is the one who, who submitted Himself, who took on death on our behalf because He loves us because He cares for us, because He actually wants to restore us to a real vibrant relationship with Him. Amen. He's the one who became dead. Oh, but He didn't stay dead. He is the one who's resurrected forevermore. He is the overcomer. He has overcome the greatest uh, force against humanity ever, death. He's overcome. Church family, he's Lord, he's overcomer, he died on our behalf and, and he lives. Not only that, but we find he's the one who speaks to his people and gives them guidance. Do, do you realize this, could you imagine this, this, this young group of believers or small group of believers? Oh Lord, we're facing this, Lord, we're crying out to you. And they're faithful, they're, they're, they're praying, they're seeking him and, and they get a word from him saying, I, I see you. I, and I'm giving you guidance and instruction, church family, God doesn't sit silent. He speaks. He speaks always through His Word. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God permanently indwells you. And Jesus said one of His roles is to bring to remembrance His Word. He speaks. He speaks clearly. We're not left guessing. The church of Smyrna is not left guessing, and we're not left guessing what Jesus' evaluation and expectations for us are. He speaks with authority. He says, do not fear. So the right response is in humility on our part to not fear. He speaks with loving kindness. Make no mistake, church family, Jesus loves us. He loves his people. He is seeking to prepare and care for his people as we walk and experience life in the midst of sufferings. He wants his people to overcome. The call to overcome is not Jesus going, well, you better try harder. The call to overcome is his encouragement, his breath of life towards us. There is, there is a great joy in his heart to see his people overcome and to hand us the crown of life. He speaks. The question is, do we listen? Not only that, but church family, he's the one who knows. Can you imagine being this church, facing the hardship and suffering you're facing? You may have seen your dad get arrested and taken into exile and you don't know where he's at. You can barely get a few slices of bread to try to feed the family. 
your business, you've been removed from the trade guild because you won't offer and you've got a target on your back. When you walk out in the street, people sneer and jeer and call you all sorts of things that are false. And you're praying, Lord, help. Lord, I don't want to know what to do. And for Jesus to say, I know. I know what you are facing. I know what you are experiencing. I'm not just aware. I'm not blind to it. I'm absolutely aware, but I'm not just aware. I experienced what you've experienced, and I am experiencing it with you as you experience. Church family, some of you in this room, you are walking through seasons of life where you are suffering greatly. I know there are stories in this room of people who are suffering real tangible injustice. And there's hard questions that come with suffering. Lord, what are you up to? Lord, where are you? Lord, what is happening? And maybe simply you just need to hear this morning, Jesus says, I know. You are not alone. I am with you always to the ends of the earth, to the intensity of the fire of the furnace. He knows, church family. The reality is in the experience of the Christian life, you and I are going to go through moments where we experience hardship and it seems like God is silent, like He is distant. And I emphasize the word seems. It's going to seem that He's not acting. And with with one simple verb, Jesus makes clear that is not the case whatsoever. It may seem that way, it may feel that way, but we can know with absolute certainty in spite of the lies of our emotions, He knows. Who is He? He's the one who holds time in His hand. He's the one who's overcome death and and, and possesses life forevermore. He's the one who speaks in God. He's the one who knows. We need to hear, church family, who He is today and ask ourselves the question, is this the Jesus we know? because it's on the basis of who He is that He calls us to do what He calls us to do. To put it fancy language, the Christological indicative, the truth of who Jesus is, is what drives the ethical imperative, the call to do, the call to stop being afraid, the call to be faithful, the call to overcome, all of this sits on the foundation of the worthiness, the goodness, the greatness of who Jesus is. So we need to hear, church family, know who Jesus is. We need to hear. Let me just put it real simply. We, we do what He says. He, here's what He says. One, He tells us a truth. The Christian life is not exempt from suffering. Jesus is very clear throughout the Gospels. The world has hated me, and if you're going to be mine, the world will hate you too. I have suffered, you will suffer. You can go read places like Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus gives the cost of discipleship. I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters are going to turn you over. If you love any family more than me, you're not worthy of me. There there is a hard, real call to the cost of discipleship. And yet studies have come out in the last few weeks that say 76% 
over three quarters of Protestant evangelical churchgoers in America believe God's will for them is financial prosperity. 76% of the church believes major tenets of the prosperity gospel, which says if you just know and love Jesus, and if you just follow Jesus rightly, he will pour out the abundance of health, wealth, and prosperity into your life now. That is a satanic lie against everything Jesus said. You may experience health, wealth, and prosperity in this world by the hand of God. It's possible. It's in Scripture too, but there is no promise from Jesus that if you honor and follow Him, you will be guaranteed health, wealth, and prosperity. What there is is a promise that for all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Church family, we need to understand it is normal in the Christian life. If we want to know Jesus, we will know what he knows, suffering, hardship. If we want to follow Jesus, we will experience what he experienced. The majority of our brothers and sisters around the world understand this, but we can't fathom it because most of us really in our hearts believe if we just do enough good in God's eyes, he will bless everything materialistically. And if 76% of the American church believes that, don't you dare think every one of us in here needs to be sensitive to let the Lord go, Lord, is there any of that, even a little nugget I've bought into? Because perhaps some of our questions of God, why are you far, God, why are you silent, perhaps, perhaps in some instances, not all, it's normal to have those questions. Go read the book of Job in Psalm 22. But, but in some cases, in some cases in my life, there are times when I have struggled, God, where are you? Because at the root, I didn't want to embrace the fact that if I follow him, he may bless and honor me with suffering. So this is the reality. The reality is testing. Jesus says in here, you'll be tested, you'll be refined. James chapter one says, don't be surprised when you find yourself tested. Testing is the path to maturity. First Peter chapter one says testing is a necessity because as Jesus tests and refines our faith to prepare us for his reward. Testing is limited. Any testing we experience in life is limited. Here it's 10 days, we see it in Job. Satan could touch only what God allowed. We know from Romans, testing won't disappoint, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Church family, understand, there is no more perfect love than God the Father for God the Son, and God the Father did not spare suffering to God the Son. And so when you hear Jesus loves you, yes, Jesus loves us. And in that love, he will protect and preserve us from more than we could ever imagine. But in that love, there will be times we suffer. And he says, I know, and I'm with you. So what is our response? What is our response if we know this truth? What's to stop being afraid, to stop living in fear, to, to stop in the, in the face of suffering we are experiencing or in the face of suffering we could see coming. We are not to waste time living in fear. We are not to be consumed by and then driven by fear, Amen. worry. Listen, we all see it, there's all sorts of stuff coming. I read an article just yesterday that in the United Kingdom, there is a 19-year-old young adult woman 
whom the doctors have decided doesn't have a chance at living anymore and they have had the courts declare her unable to care for herself so they can pull the plug on her. Because they've decided her life is not worth her having a fighting chance and she's suffering as a believer. We see things coming down. We like to have conversations. See how, see how things have ramped up even, even in our own. Maybe there's DEI statements and layoffs at jobs, bullying online at schools, consequences of, of elections, this and that and the other. There are things coming that we could suffer. And Jesus' word today is don't sit around today being driven in fear. Cut it out. Cut it out. Can you imagine the temptation that faced the Smyrnans? Hey, you are suffering, you are living in abject poverty, and if you would just pinch a little incense and say, Jesus, or say Caesar is Lord, it's just a goofy thing. It's, it's, you don't have to believe it in your heart. All of it would go away. Or inverse, hey, you just wanna sign up with our little, uh, our little extremist militia, we'll sneak in in the night and we'll do some assassinations and this'll go away. And we'll overcome evil with more evil rather than overcome evil with good. Can you imagine the temptations that face them? That, that in their fear of what could come tomorrow, you're telling me, do you realize Jesus told them, I not only know what you're going through, but I know and my word is never wrong, it's about to get worse. Don't be afraid. Fear will never lead us into God's will in and through our lives. It'll either drive us to capitulate or it'll leave us paralyzed in the idolatry of half-heartedness, it will open doors in our lives to solutions that are not of Christ. We can no more bow at the altar of progressivism than we can bow at, at the altar of, of hyper-patriotism. We, we have to reject anything that would deny Jesus as Lord to whatever side of any political aisle it would call us, even if it means we suffer. Here's the reality, church family, we're gonna come to a day in America when you're gonna have multiple candidates and you won't be able to vote for single one of them because to, to vote for any of them would cause you to violate your conscience before Jesus Christ. And you're gonna go, oh my goodness, then who's gonna represent us? Welcome to what it meant being a Christian in the first century. Now I'm not saying that to say, oh, I look forward to that day. I, I hope it doesn't come. But reality is, if there is no course correction of great awakening, there are just gonna be real points and we cannot allow fear to drive our actions in any way. Amen. Instead, what has to drive our actions, stop being afraid, be faithful, be loyal. Don't, don't, we don't respond to suffering by, by being consumed and worried by it, nor do we respond by putting our head in the sand and acting like it's not going on. No, instead what we do, we fully know what's going on and we be we exhibit a steadfast loyalty to Jesus, to who he is, to what he does. See, there's a direct correlation. Fear will root out faithfulness. But at the same time, our faithfulness sits and is compelled by our faith. So how might we be faithful? We stand where Jesus says he stands in his word. We're faithful to seek him rightly and daily. We show kindness to the least of these that society neglects. We seek to be faithful in whatever marital status we have, single or married. We work hard in our jobs as unto his glory and unto his mission in whatever our vocation is, whether you be a child in school, a teenager in, in school and extracurriculars, an adult with a job, whatever our vocation may be, we do it all unto his glory and for his mission. We remain loyal and pure in our love for him at all costs. You know, here's the reality. All of us 
it probably, if, probably if, we just, if we just sat down and had a little forum and said, hey, what, what do we see coming down the road? Most of us probably see all sorts of bad things coming down the road. But here's the real reality. Not one of us knows the future because not one of us lives there, but Jesus does. Amen. It may be that more suffering's coming down the road. It could also be, it could be that Jesus is returning in the next hundred years. It could also be that God is looking, searching to and fro to find the hearts of his saints who wouldn't be caught up in speculating what could or could not be coming in the future, but is looking for the hearts of his saints who say, Lord, we love you. Lord, we want to be faithful to pray for you to move. We want to be faithful to share the gospel. Who knows if God doesn't have another great awakening on his heart, but will he find his people faithful? Or will he just find us speculating about what's to come? We're called to be faithful, church family. We're called to be faithful. And the question is, will we be faithful because He's worthy, or are we only faithful for what we get? See, that's the danger of the prosperity gospel. In those same studies, it shows the majority of American believers believe that God giving anything good to them is dependent upon their work. That's a works-based gospel, which is not a by-grace-through-faith gospel. Will we only be faithful for what He can give us, or will we be faithful because He is worthy? Hear the word of the Lord. We're called to overcome. He says to those, look back with me there in verse 11, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. We're called to, to overcome, to actively live by His grace in the Holy Spirit, to abide by faith through Him. Listen to what Scripture says. How do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, Revelation 12 to 11. It means how do we overcome? By the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done, by the word of our testimony appropriated into our life through faith. Our hope for overcoming is not us, it's Him. Listen to what else Scripture says. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have tribulation, but take courage. I, Jesus speaking, have overcome the world. First John 4, 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them, talking about the world and the spiritual forces, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We overcome because he is the overcomer. And the call to overcome here is not Jesus' way of saying, try harder. It's his way of joyfully calling us. Remember, God is sovereign. If, if we're saved, he's securely on the throne. He's going to see us through. But we also have decisions we have to make. The call to overcome should impact our decisions. Will we choose to live in fear? Will we choose to live faithfully? Which one will it be? Will we overcome? Will we, will we refuse to be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with good? Church family, here's what he calls, and listen, as we hear all of this, here's what he calls us to do. He calls us to anticipate what he gives. There is a crown of life. Church family, he has promised, if you are in Christ, eternal life. Life without pain, life without sorrow, life without goodbyes, life without 24-7 cable news. Life with glory, life with love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, life with now chaos, life with him face to face. He has promised a glory. The sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glories to be revealed. If we hope for what we, we do not see with perseverance, we wait with it. 
Wait for it. And just as it is written, things which eye has not seen nor ear has heard and have not entered into the heart of man, God has prepared for those who love him. Church family, it's not just a call to avoid fear and to walk in faithfulness and and by doing so to overcome because of what's now. It's because of what's coming. We do it now because he is worthy now. And when we come to the point of breathing our final breath and seeing what he's prepared, you better believe we will go, it was all worth it. It's very possible that the individual reading this letter to the church in Smyrna, or if not reading it, would have been there hearing it read for the first time, was a man by the name of Polycarp. Sixty years after John writes this letter and it's read in the church of Smyrna, Polycarp is pastoring the Smyrna church as an 80-plus-year-old 80, 80 man. The Smyrna authorities decide they're going to arrest him, and at the urging of the congregation, he flees to hide at a farm on the outside of town. As the authorities widen their search net, they show up at the farm, and they can't find him. But for some reason, they think he's there, and so they take two of the young slaves of that farm, and they begin to torture them. And those slaves succumb to the torture and and cough up Polycarp. Now, Polycarp could have escaped, but what he told them is, no, this is God's will for me. He welcomed those who came to arrest him. He asked that they be served a good meal and have water, not treating them with evil, but with kindness. Spent some time in prayer and they escorted him into the carriage outside of the police chief. The police chief said, Polycarp, what, what's the big, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, but this is, this is accurate. What's the big deal about a little pinch of incense? You're such an old man. Polycarp would say, God, God doesn't allow us to turn from something good to that which is evil, only to turn that from that which is evil to that which is good. I can't do it. They tried to be nice, then they get ugly. They throw them out of the carriage, causing instant bruising. They drag them away to the arena. The proconsul's up. He says, Polycarp, you're so old. Don't make us do this to you. We've got wild beasts that will tell you limb from limb. He says, we've got fire that'll burn you. Polycarp says, your fire will burn for just a little bit, but the fire of God's judgment will burn forever. He said, so what are you waiting for? Do it. They would ultimately take Polycarp and they'd gather wood and they came to put him on the pyre to burn him alive. Now, it was custom when you burn someone alive, you don't want them to escape off the flame, so you nail them to the pyre. They came to nail him, and he said, stop. You don't need to nail me. He who's given me grace to face this will give me grace not to jump out. And they didn't nail him, they just tied him. They lit the fire, he burned. Ultimately, they would come in with a sword, run him through, let him bleed out. And in all of this, here was Polycarp's quote. 
When asked to recount Christ, he said, 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Church family, I do not know what tomorrow holds. I do know our Lord is the first and the last, the one who became dead, who is raised forevermore. I do know he speaks to us today that we are not to live another moment fearing what tomorrow holds and the suffering that could come, but knowing that he knows that he is with us. And so in light of the worthiness of who he is, we walk faithfully. And by his grace and the blood of the lamb, we overcome. And when we get to the end, we will see with our own eyes, he is absolutely worthy and it is all worth it. May we be marked by such today. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. You are worthy. You are holy. And God, this is not an easy passage. But this is not an easy world. And the price you paid was not cheap, but was of a cost that not one of us who is in you will ever know. So Jesus, may you find us not driven to follow you by guilt. There's nothing guilting about your message. Lord, may we be driven to follow you out of love, knowing your love for us and loving you in return, in response. Holy Spirit, as you are moving and you know where hearts are, may you find us humble and responsive to you. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.